Celtic Stuff Live. Welcome to Celtic Stuff Live on CLNS Radio, the leading online provider of audio and video coverage for Boston sports. We are going to extend this off-season interview series throughout the preseason. Just had a few people we had to get to after the technical difficulties slowed us down. And now, all of a sudden, training camp is underway and it's upon us, but... We did record today's interview. Oh, this is the second time we've recorded it with Eric Weiss. The technical difficulties uh, set us back, and then uh, now we're up and running. We've got this Spreaker relationship that is 100% fantastic. I'm loving the audio quality and the ability to do the recording. So, again, a shout-out to them. But thankful that Eric is going to give us another 60-plus minutes of his time to talk about his experience. He's an old friend of Celtic Stuff Live and a great friend, probably one of the most consistent contributors to our draft night show for obvious reasons based on his work with DraftExpress.com and now uh, related venture sports aptitude, really taking analytics and psychology and combining them together with a unique perspective on NBA players and team dynamics. So we're going to get into all of that with Eric right away here. But first, a reminder to follow Celtic Stuff Live on Twitter. You can find us at CSL underscore Tweet Live, as well as myself at CSL underscore Justin and my co-host at CSL underscore Duke. The entire CLNS Radio network is at CLNS Radio and our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash CLNS fans. Don't forget to download the CLNS Radio app for iOS and Android. Simply search CLNS Radio in your app marketplace and the YouTube channel is up and running and humming. YouTube dot com forward slash CLNS Radio for high definition full length locker room interviews and the Garden Report is back with our buddy Jared Weiss. So, listen, going to be a great season. Really excited about training camp, but had such an enjoyable time with this off-season interview series. It needs to be closed out in proper order, and we're going to bring to you today Eric Weiss from Draft Express and Sports Aptitude. So let's get right into the interview. This week's interview brought to you by Fan Essentials and also Audible.com. We're going to hear from them and special offers for you later in the show. Eric Weiss from Draft Express and Sports Aptitude joining me. Actually, I know you know listeners don't know this, except if I tell you, but for the second time. We've done this before, and Eric has graciously come back, and we had a little bit of uh, time in between, so I think we're going to give you sort of not the reduplicated, rehearsed version of the interview, but basically just a brand new version of this interview. We are extending the off-season interview series throughout the preseason. We've got a few of these coming at you, and to close it out, mostly because of technical difficulties, which, Eric, you have 100% stuck through with Celtic Stuff Live to get through it. I think the resulting audio is much better now. We're using Spreaker, so I can guarantee you we won't have to re-record this one. Thanks for coming on again, man. Yeah, no, it's no problem. You know, obviously, you know, schedules and whatnot, but uh, stuff happens, so... Yeah, whatever. Here we are. 
Well, it's just so funny because you were with us back in the early days when I had eight pieces of equipment and two laptops and a phone coupler and all this stuff set up. It would take me 45 minutes to get things going, and then I'd have to take it down afterwards because my cat used to like to eat our soundboard. We don't have a cat anymore, by the way. And um, so, you know, that was uh, that was kind of the way it was, and now I literally just plugged into my laptop, and here we go. But now, now there are things that I can't control, including technology, and, you know, the previous recording uh, software is outdated. And now I've got this updated soundboard with Spreaker, which... I absolutely love, but like I said, you were with us early on. I think actually our very first live draft show, only about six months into the advent of Celtic Stuff Live, you came on as as one of our experts, and it's interesting. I think one of the things I really want to talk to you about, different than many of our other guests, which is when you were coming on our show, you were just beginning a career, and not as much in sports media like maybe John and I and some of the other guests, not that you don't contribute to sports media at Draft Express, but I also think you've grown your career to be much more consultative. And I would just love for you to walk us through what sort of interested you in your unique take, which is a lot about team building and sports psychology, broad metrics and analytics, which nobody else in the off-season interview series has that background that we've spoken with. Maybe just kind of start us at the beginning and, and how you got interested in this to create your niche. Um, well, first and foremost, if I had known that, uh, you know, new media sports journalism or what have you would transition into job opportunities in front offices, I might have just kept on writing and shooting off at the mouth uh, in a public <laughs> forum. <laughs> back in the day, the way it worked is if you went into journalism, you were just commenting on what the people that made decisions do, or you tried to figure out some kind of way to be a person that makes decisions. And I always wanted to be close to the game. I love the game. And I wanted to be, you know, I did not want to comment on the game. I wanted to, you know, contribute something to actual decision-making. And whatever small part I may or may not have in the actual decision-making right now through the consultation, I've been doing it for 10 years, and that started going to the first Vegas Summer League and, uh, you know, just kind of putting it out there. I've heard, you know, through the podcast series that you've been doing, you know, talking a lot about you know, journalists and how to get, you know, kind of get started. Um, I have a little bit, you know, of a different background, obviously. Um, but I'd say that the one thing that's important is getting after it and getting in the room, you know, paying your dues, not expecting to get paid that we've all been there. Uh, but definitely, you know, just showing up and being consistent with everybody I know, even, you know, in the front office, not everybody, but a lot of people there, you know, just chasing it around, doing what they can. And I probably quit, uh, three or four jobs and or possibly got, you know, just because I would take all my free time, <laughs> I would take time off to go to events. And, uh, and, um, I worked two jobs to work for draft express or, you know, with Jonathan and we covered stuff and I was writing in the mornings and doing my job in the afternoon and sleeping under my desk and, you know, just, just chasing it around like that. So, you know, it really started with website. I got lucky. I wanted to write. I used to go to, you know, message board forums and talk, you know, about the game with other people. There's nobody around me 
really cared as much. And then I got introduced to somebody that was doing a website. I wanted to write and it just happened to be, you know, luck that I found somebody that was going to end up, you know, really, you know, really turning to a power, you know, in the league in terms of scouting. So, you know, one part luck, uh, two parts uh, initiative. Well, that's always what it is, right? You have to develop a work ethic, and then things have to land just so. You you know, you talked about how you like to talk about these things. I remember when I went and covered a game for the first time in about four or five years, and I think it was February. It was either January or February this past season. But I remember seeing you there, and you and Kevin O'Connor were having such a deep, ingrained conversation about strategy and skill and different players and why their skill set matches this area, not this area. And since then, you know, Kevin obviously is now with Bill Simmons' website, The Ringer, and he always puts together that awesome draft guide. But it's just funny because, you know, you mentioned, hey, if I'd known where new media was going to go, maybe I would have continued going that way. But even then, it takes a whole lot of luck to get to that stage. And Kevin O'Connor, you know, was able to cash in on that, what I would say, pretty early in his career. Oh, yeah. And Kevin is as much of a go-getter as anybody. I mean, uh, I want to speak too much, uh, you know, on his behalf, but I, I love Kevin. I got I got lucky. He introduced himself to me in social media. I got a, uh, a uh, whatever, a private message tweet or whatever they're called. I'm not the most savvy as a 37-year-old. It's a everything. DM, <laughs> but, but I'm 42, yeah, so you have no excuse. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sorry. I don't really talk much on the, you know, on the back end. I tweet things out every once in a while. But anyways, he reached out, and he was just proactive. And uh, I happened to, you know, have uh, a need for, you know, for some assistance. And he had a background that was uh, covered psychology a little bit and he was coming out of school and you know I had read some of his stuff and he was good and and just that proactivity and so he made his own luck just kind of like I made my own luck and and uh and he's just a bulldog I mean he goes after it he works you know relentlessly uh you know probably 15 hours a day most of the time I would guess by the times he texts me back and forth Uh, I don't know if he sleeps at all but uh yeah that's I mean I think if you're looking at uh you know how you rise you know that quickly I mean being relentless and, you know, pursuing something with everything you have is a good start. And the fact that he has skill at what he does and he's accruing knowledge relative to his age and experience and, you know, overall exposure. I mean, this guy's the limit. So let's take that and draw it out to maybe what we're talking about, that work ethic, that little bit of luck. And I think there's that relentless attitude, but I think passion has a lot to do with it as well. So let's draw that maybe to some of these intangibles, uh, the soft skills that maybe somebody possesses. Can we draw some parallels to, you know, how that plays out for a player? Because I remember in the off season, in when the draft leading up to the draft with Jalen Brown and then some of the criticism afterwards was Jalen has all these other interests. You know, he likes chess and all this other stuff and oh my, and he can't shoot. So now he's not a good prospect. And, you know, maybe his, he's not passionate about basketball. I think it's an unfair criticism 
But, you know, I also think that they're that the idea of the soft skills and how they might translate, I, th- I saw it as a positive. Whereas all of a sudden I was looking and, you know, the fan base and some of the media were drawing negative conclusions from it. I just found that totally interesting. I, I, maybe you could speak to, speak to some of the soft skills and drive and passion and how that still translates maybe for a player trying to make it in the NBA. Yeah, you know, and obviously this is ground that we covered a couple weeks ago, so I'm trying to remember some of what we were talking about then and put a new spin. Um, But uh, I think the danger with the reason I do what I do is not because it's quote unquote the answer, right? I don't think there is any, you know, single metric or any type of, you know, analytic function that is going to give you certainty on anything. But what you see when people approach, you know, an individual and try to gauge why they do what they do and, and, you know, how they conduct themselves, it's, it's very dangerous grounds to go off of no information uh, other than what you observe, because you're looking at the outcome. And then most people are predisposed to draw parallels to how they would behave in a given situation, right? I mean, it's just natural. It's like, well, if I was that person, I would do this. And, you know, and this kind of ties back to how I got into this, but you look at someone like Dan Barnes, he doesn't fit maybe the perfect mold, and then people start drawing parallels to other players that might have been intellectual or had, you know, divergent interests from pure basketball or whatever, and then all of a sudden you're starting to create analogies that have a very high probability of being inaccurate in key areas, right? And, you know, you could extend this just to guys that have, you know, quote unquote character issues or have been problems on other teams. My thing has always been, well, what was the problem? You know, the whole, the old adage, there's three sides. You're not alluding to Rondo, are you? (laughs) Well, that was an easy one, right? Rondo was smart too. So they must be the same. That's, that's dangerous logic. And and so, you know, like I said, the approach to any situation is, you know, three-sided. There's what one, you know, what he said, what she said, and then there's the truth, right? So you need to be able to triangulate in some way. And, and, you know, the best scouts uh, obviously talk to a bunch of people and get multiple opinions, you know, to try to, you know, uh, control for bias. But I found that it's also very valuable to have some type of data, you know, first person feedback, and that can be gotten from interviews sometimes, but it's nice when the information that you're getting uh, is a little bit more difficult to game. And if you put all of that stuff together, then you're going to come up with a more well-educated hypothesis on what's going on. And in my experience, it leads to you know, a greater deal of accuracy when gauging the risk. Does that qualify as recency bias when you're cross? You know uh, what I mean? I, I'm not sure that it does, but I, I want I wanted your take on that. I guess I get over. I mean, recency in terms of you know the our most recent that, player who was smart was Rajon Rondo. So now Jalen Brown's <laughs> going to become Rajon Rondo. Is that really recency bias, or is it? You know, I don't know. It's it, it probably doesn't matter. It's probably a stupid question, but you know, I was kind of thinking like, 
that our most recent experience with smart players is that they're stubborn maybe and don't always take coaching and maybe they create a rift in the locker room with Ray Allen. And so now now all of a sudden we're going to apply that to Jalen Brown when we actually know nothing about him or how he's going to, uh, you know, immerse himself in Celtics culture. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think I mean, I think there's some element of that. And then there's also the not being able to, you know, typecast an individual in their behavior. And then it's exacerbated, of course, by, uh, you know, kind of our our I call it highlight reel uh, memorization. Right. We tend that's kind of why analytics are so valuable, because we tend to remember the most significant things. And for a guy like Brown that was ranked, you know, in the top five um, in his high school class that goes and then struggles, you know, for a year, that's already going to put doubt and a negative connotation on the things that are not only most recent, but most prevalent in terms of people's exposure. And then you start, these things start stacking up on top of each other. Right. And it's like, okay. And, and there's, there's plenty to be, I don't know, I guess concerned about when you're, when you're, you're talking about the potential of an individual to be a star, but that's probably true for anybody, the ability to become a star is extremely limited. And for my, you know, from my perspective, I will take a player that is, you know, whether or not he questions things is not as important as whether or not he is questioning things in order to better understand how they work, or if he's questioning them simply to, you know, poke holes in them and dismiss them because he's stubborn and wants to do whatever he wants to do. Those are two different things. You can be inquisitive without being controlling and without being, you know, uh, so self-confident that you're, you know, you're not receptive to the ability, you know, to the possibility of your own, you know, limitations. And so, you know, just the fact that you're smart and that you question authority that can happen in different ways. And that's, that's kind of why you want to go as far as you can. And what I've seen from, from Jalen Brown, at least is the fact that he has been not only using a mental skills coach, but, you know, just open and endorsing that type of thing, like him and Aaron, Aaron Gordon uh, with that lucid app that just launched. I mean, for a kid that age to be, to be open to the process of, you know, doing visualization and that's like all that stuff, like that is not, that's not common at that age. So I, I see receptivity indicators and whatever and maturity, right? Learn. I mean, that's a mature, yeah. that's a mature Absolutely. approach to developing the career. I mean, we, we've seen quotes about how he's sort of taking that, what was it? 30,000 or 20,000 hours concept from Kobe and kind of modeling himself after that. I mean, it just, again, I think it's, you can be passionate about other things, but those skills can still relate to what you're doing. And a lot of it is about life balance and how to be successful, period. doesn't matter where your energy is going. These are things that successful people do. And, you know, chess is a smart man's game. There's no doubt. And I stink at it, so I don't know what that says about me. But I can't, <laughs> I can't even beat my son in chess. I'm miserable. And I'm, I'm hopelessly miserable at that game. I think maybe it's my impatience is, is really the issue. But regardless, you know, s- skills like you said, meditation, visualization, you know, putting in that work ethic early in your career, w- working on conditioning, before your body requires it, 
You, and and what I mean by that is, I'm sure day in and day out in the NBA game, you re, you're required to stay in crazy conditioning. But look at somebody like Jared Sullinger, who just struggled to stay in shape in the off season, and really only used playing time to be able to stay, you know, in a in a point where you know he's in game shape. He had to be playing games to be there. And I almost feel like somebody like Jalen Brown is working on being in game shape all see all year long, not just in season. I I would imagine so. I mean, uh from I don't know the man personally, but from what I have gleaned from, you know, scouting him and, and talking to other scouts and, and just seeing what everybody else can see too, just looking at the interview material, videos, etc. I was gonna say the videos that came out of like working out with yeah. Butler and all of that, like you know, working out with Jimmy and his trainer just seems impressive that he's, you know, I mean, I know these guys work out in the off season, but I think you get my point with Jared. I mean, I, last year he worked so hard in the off season, but the quote at the end of this season was he, he can barely see himself doing that again. And so, you know, that's got to be tough, you know, for him to, to start looking at this new, you know, time with the Toronto Raptors and how did he get himself to where he needs to be. And, you know, I think it's something that he will evolve into, hopefully, but not every player coming in the league has that drive and determination, you know, because when you're young, you can kind of get away with it. I, I mean, your body is forgiving. It, you know, responds quicker. It adjusts quicker. But, you know, look at Paul Pierce and, and Kevin Garnett, and, you know, every time their retirement comes up, they start talking about, you know, I just don't know if I can, you know, they're just not sure that they can do what's required in the off season to be ready for an entire NBA season again. Yeah, I don't need any, uh, you know, any exposure to pro athletes to understand the body's limitations as they age. But uh, yeah, <laughs> you just I need can, some uh... <laughs> time and experience. And <laughs> in, in the amount of in the amount of uh, extra work that goes in. Uh, to maintaining a physique that you may or may not have taken for granted at 22 or 23 or 24 with uh, eating and, you know, diet, nutrition, and exercise. I mean, it just becomes more and more challenging. And when you have those challenges early, I mean, that that's tough. And, and on top of that challenge, you, you show, you know, uh, a lack of whatever it is that's necessary to Discipline. embrace the work that needs to be done. Yes, that. That is that's tough, and you know the one thing I'd say is that as you get older too, um, you tend to mature and realize uh, certain things, and you'd hope that you know coming at some point there'll be a balance point between being faced with limitations and uh, what the cost of those uh, limitations would be, and and that ups your urgency. I have a much better work ethic for things that I do not consider to be interesting now than I did 10, 15 years ago because necessity you know, uh, is the mother of invention. <laughs> so I had to do more in order to get all of the things done that I wanted, where when you're younger and you have less responsibilities uh, and the world seems a little maybe, you know, I don't say easier, but it, it, it you may be more optimistic about your ability to just kind of do whatever you do and then have everybody else realize your, your greatness. So, you know, you can – you can wise up. You just hope that it doesn't happen after the opportunity is gone. And unfortunately that happens to a ton of guys. You see interviews with players and they talk about, man, I was such an idiot, <laughs> you know, when I had my chance. And I think we all have stories like that, but you hope that it's not the, I missed my window. We're talking with Eric Weiss of draft express and sports aptitude 
Just a real quick reminder and a shout-out that this uh, interview is brought to you by FanEssentials.net. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team. I'm sure it's the Celtics, and every month you get team gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so that you don't have to, and each one of these fan boxes comes fully packed with some amazing gear. It's a great gift idea for any sports fan with prices starting at just $34.99. And by supporting Celtic Stuff Live, we're going to help you as well, saving you 30% on the first month of your subscription by using promo code CSL2016 at the checkout. Go to fanessentials.net to get all the essentials that you need. And a reminder, Celtic Stuff Live is giving away one free month each week on our Monday show to our listeners. All you have to do is retweet any one of our show announcements on Twitter with the hashtag fanessentials. Make sure you're following CSL Tweet Live so we can send you a direct message and we'll announce the winner again on Monday's show every single week. So make sure you're tuning in on Monday to find out if you're our next big winner. All right, Eric, one of the things that we talked out talked about before we got on to this interview was sort of like the concept of a team captain and I know that one of your big time niches and expertise uh, in covering teams and team dynamics, and I guess the human condition, is really how all of these team dynamics add up. And I think as of right now in our interview, the Celtics don't have a captain for the upcoming season. And I wondered your thoughts on this concept of team captain. Is it essential? Does it work in certain scenarios and not others? Or you know, how do you see that whole captain concept playing out, especially as it relates to like leadership and leadership uh, being established on a team? Yeah, no, uh, you know, I, I think one of the most interesting things about what I, you know, what I focus on in sports is that a lot of it has been done in, you know, obviously different permutations when you translate across, uh, you know, across uh, professions, but there's a lot of material to draw from. And so when you get into the concept of leadership, uh, anyone that's studied organizational development understands, you know, having, you know, a top down structure is good. And then, you know, because you kind of need messaging and to establish a culture, you kind of need that type of communication and you need, you know, to define exactly what you're trying, you know, you're trying to build, but leadership in terms of the idea of a captain, I think it really depends on, the kind of organizational culture uh, you've built or you're building, right? There's different people, you know, require different stimuli for, you know, for getting accountability, getting on the same page. And I think sometimes you can have a collaborative environment where you know that, uh, you know, players have a good balance between each other and they understand how to find common ground. And then it's probably not as necessary to differentiate one from the rest, right? Talent alone determines roles and if everybody you know has buy-in and everyone's plugged in I don't think you need to tap somebody on the shoulder and say hey you have the authority here because that's kind of settled itself whereas you know in a different situation I'd say probably in a younger certainly the easiest one I think is in a is in an environment where there isn't a lot of continuity in terms of you know multiple years uh you know in the same organization um you know six this level of success if things are still kind of developing, I think it can be extremely helpful to have somebody that's had a tremendous amount of experience in a higher caliber environment that is, 
similar to the culture that you're trying to establish in order to create a focal point, you know, for everybody else to almost like a goal know, not only that people can emulate like a yeah. person that emulates the goal not that it's like you go to the players and say you need to be like this person but you're taking somebody who exemplifies what the organization wants to be about you put them in that position and you hope that other players gravitate by the leading by example concept well no well yes and no so the danger there uh, which happens often is the idea that you bring these people in and then that just kind of takes place by itself. And again, now you're talking about the individuals involved. And I think that in order to have that goes back down to the top down, you know, management structure, right? So if you want that person to have maximize, you know, the success of what you're attempting to do by bringing in that person, you need to make it clear. I think, you know, ownership, management, whoever the, the lead voice is from up high, you know, top down, there has to be clarity that this person specifically is empowered with, you know, not only being his reputation, but he is the authority and that management is backing him as the leader. And, you know, because you can't guarantee buy-in just because it seems intuitively obvious that you would do everything that, you know, the three-time champion, you know, seven-time all-star guy says, it doesn't work like that. Like go, referencing back to, you know, when we were young or when you're younger and you kind of think that you know more than you do, you know, potentially, and, and that things will work in your favor uh, because they always have, or, you know, that's what you're used to. This mommy and daddy told you you're a new snowflake, whatever it is about being young. Uh, I think sometimes you have to, you know, let those other people know that this person's word is is the word and it is backed by the organization and you 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 have to compel people to at least follow and if they still don't then you know something significant but if you don't create that kind of empowerment and you reinforce that message there's you know a very good chance that whatever that individual is trying to do through their lead by example may be ignored or not fully digested by somebody who may respect them but doesn't necessarily understand that, no, that is the way we do things around here. Not just you should be like that, but no, you must be like that. So that's, in order to so you know what, this is here. great. So there's, there's the Kevin Garnett phenomenon, which just table that for a second, because I'm going to tie maybe the two more prominent phases of the Celtics organization or one that they're heading into in the time that you and I have really been watching closely. So just let's put Kevin Garnett, who may be retiring, let's put let's table that for a second, say that there's that one phenomenon right there. But then I'm going to cite Celtics Beach show from this past Sunday, uh, or two Sundays ago, I think, when this airs, Chris Vivlamore from the Atlantic, uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution was with Larry H. Russell, and one of the concepts that they talked about was the loss uh, and the impact of the loss of Al Horford in the Atlanta Hawks locker room and that he was never a really vocal leader and that maybe the team at times, you know, there may have been some people within the organization that had criticized Al for not being being more vocal and being more of a, an established leader per se. And yet everybody seems to know that the absence of Al Horford for the Hawks and that's also people within the organization and definitely people like Chris who've been able to watch that like you and I have um, in being covering the team you know that 
that Al Horford is going to be a huge leadership loss in the Atlanta Hawks room, in the locker room. So let's tie it together and let's say this. Can you do something where, okay, Al Horford is a senior statesman day one for the Celtics. We know that he's not a vocal leader. Could he still become a team captain this early on? Or how would that sort of... And I'm not asking it like legitimately, like the Celtics should do this or should they not do it in, in, in some sort of like hot take scenario. I just mean, I think I want to hear more about your perspective and I think maybe taking this Kevin Garnett, compare and contrast with Al Horford, and also the fact that, yeah, he's the oldest, but he's also the newest on the team. How do you kind of break that down from your assessment as far as, you know, okay, if the team were to say, Al Horford, you're the team captain moving forward, even though you just got here into town? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I don't think it takes, uh, you know, a PhD level of genius to see the differences in personality between Kevin Garnett and Al Horford. Uh, I think any, anybody at home that watched basketball for more than, you know, two seasons of their life uh, <laughs> during, during their overall. You mean Al Horford doesn't pound his head off the stanchion every, every <laughs> time he gets ready to play? You would, no. I definitely can't see Al Horford getting down into the Cobra pose the way KG did, for for sure. Yeah, uh, but if you want to look at an interesting, and it's not a perfect analogy by, by any stretch of the imagination, but if we're looking at some of the key similarities and differences, I would look at Al Horford's time with Joe Kim Noah in Florida as uh, kind of a hypothetical baseline for what it would look like if you had both of those individuals on the team one completely emotional you know guided by their emotions and reactive and intense and you know probably impatient and you know occasionally out of control but you know it works for who he is I don't know if I want everybody on my team to emulate you know Kevin Garnett he reminds me of uh you know John McEnroe who was my favorite tennis player when I was a kid growing up mostly because my dad hated him for exactly the same reasons that I loved him (laughs) certain people can can somehow get better when they're emotionally compromised. Most people do not improve when they're emotionally <laughs> compromised. So, you know, uh, having a Kevin Garnett is phenomenal because of the vocality, because of the level of intensity and energy he puts out and the accountability he demands out of, out of others. And I think that is definitely a type of leadership, uh, you know, that you want is somebody that will speak up and will not just kind of do the right thing, but not hold other people accountable in terms of calling them out and all that. And I think when you look at Al Horford, you know, the lead by him was probably like Avery Bradley as well, which I'm, I'd say that's the closest parallel. Obviously Horford has, you know, uh, more age, uh, more accomplishment and a longer tenure than pretty much anybody else on the team. So, I mean, that adds a new, you know, a new dynamic to what that's going to get uh, attention regardless of if he's a first year guy. I think that's probably less important than what, you know, the perception of the other individuals on the team. Right. And I think Al Horford brings a lot of gravitas with him because of who he is, but the next step there, I mean, I think Isaiah Thomas is probably, and Jay Crowder is, are a lot more in line with the, you know, the, the people that would be willing to speak up and kind of get into it and and do all that and and i think you can manufacture that a little bit going back to the empowerment thing but if it's not natural uh it's definitely going to be more structured in terms of okay well will you 
you know, Will used to be a guy. You can't go too far against nature, but you can put in structures where it's okay for somebody to voice, like you encourage them to voice their, their opinion. And I don't know if that was necessarily the case in, you know, in Atlanta since he came in when he was a rookie and things were kind of built around him. Who knows how, you know, that ecosystem uh, really worked. But, you know, I don't, I don't know about, you know, being named a captain. I think he'll get respect whether or not he is, you know, enforcing his will on other people. I don't know how much you actually need to do that with this group, which is a unique situation. You have a very strong culture uh, and a lot of people that seem to have uh, very strong synergy in terms of respecting each other, being aware and, and creating accountability organically. So I don't know if it's necessary. It just seems to me that the team captain thing, there's also a feeding of someone's ego intentionally. I'm not saying it's always used that way, but there does seem to be sort of a, a an aspect of it to that. And Brad's whole coaching style really, to me, almost seems like, why would you have a team captain? You know, it's it's even as we watch the, the Patriots survive without Tom Brady for four games, it's the... The entire team, the sum being greater than the whole of it, or the whole being greater than the sum of its parts, and you know, it's the it's the Ubuntu thing that Doc Rivers tried to bring when all of a sudden he had three all stars from different teams all in one team trying to win a championship, and how do you make that work? It almost seems like it would be counter, not in counterintuitive, but just run counter to the culture that the Celtics are trying to establish and what is a knack for Brad Stevens. So that's kind of what I think about that. But I have to go back to something you said about Kevin Garnett because it really relates to the business world. And you mentioned how it's not common for somebody when they become emotionally, I don't want to say dysregulated, but almost emotionally overwhelmed for them to get better, and yet here's a player who did. And one of the buzzwords in human resources uh, all across the country, and especially corporately, is this concept of emotional intelligence. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on on that. It just kind of occurred to me as you were describing, Kevin, that, yeah, I think there's a place for this emotional intelligence, but at the same time, you know, how does how does a company or an organization or a team drive forward without somebody who's passionate and keeping that emotional intelligence in check? I mean, if you had everybody who was a sort of emotionally intelligent and flatlined and thoughtful every time, you know, who's yeah, really of inspiring other people? Yeah, no, exactly. Like I said you, you'd have a lot of accountants if you had everybody on the uh, <laughs> being completely controlled. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, an objective minded and, you know, attention to detail and all that other stuff, which are all good qualities. I, from what I've seen, the benefit of doing this for 10 years is that the data has gotten, uh, you know, so robust that I have entire, you know, working units, you know, three to five, even whole rosters of players in, in some situations. And although I have not done a study on, you know, kind of the inner dynamics between two individuals who are different and have, you know, specifically, you know, uh, defined types of roles, uh, just from a qualitative uh, view of the data, the best teams have mixes of individuals, right? You need push-pull. You need somebody that fires people up and has a high sense of urgency, but you also need the person that settles things down and has the perspective and maybe needs to get fired up sometimes, but also needs to calm 
the other person down and get them focused back on the moment again and get them back to task. It reminds me have, of, you know, of my, my best friend and our relationship all through high school. I was the passionate one who got him all wound up and he was always, you know, sort of the quiet tempered individual. I was the risk taker, you know, and he still was a risk taker, but maybe I guess I should say, you know, everybody in high school is somewhat of a risk taker, but he was, he was he was a little bit quieter about it, but I remember we used to play basketball. It was one of the things that we always did was one on one, and he was three inches taller than me and had a better shot. But I would psychologically beat him to death and win. And the more I won, the more I would win again because it started to matter to him. And I was the one that was always firing him up, and at the same time, he'd always be like, "Dude, you gotta you gotta chill." And uh, you know, it's like the yin to the yang, right? Well, that's, you know, that's kind of getting into more, you know, armchair psychology when we're talking about opposites attracting and all this other stuff. I mean, certain, certain opposite traits are very conducive to certain, you know, certain tasks and, and certain job responsibilities. And then there's ones that you want more congruency on, right? So the way you mix individual, that's the whole elusive, ever elusive team chemistry, right? You're always trying to figure out what the mix of individuals is. And in sports, it makes it much harder because in the corporate world where there's been much more research done on people analytics and, you know, talent management solutions in general, you have, if, you, if, if one, you know, accountant or one uh, sales guy is not an ideal match for your group, you have 50,000 other ones to choose from. When you bring, you know, physical The number three overall pick. The equation. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. You, there's like a diminishing return on having the ideal for one. You don't always have an option of an ideal period within any like given draft, but certainly when you're looking at the standard distribution of talent uh, available to you uh, and skill available to you in any given draft, you know, where's the balance point between what a person is capable of doing and how they are going to apply themselves to, you know, what is inevitably the growth that will be necessary to realize their potential. And that balance point, you know, often leaves you having to make imperfect decisions. Uh, you know, because you don't get to have the ideal candidate like other organizations, you know, have the luxury of, of doing another, you know, another professions. So, you know, the art of picking the player that has the best probability of, you know, of learning, I guess, and, and working with relative to the options is much more of the game, name of the game uh, when it comes to, you know, evaluating uh, sports talent. All right, Eric Weiss from Draft Express and Sports Aptitude. We're two-thirds of the way through the interview. We're taking our next break just for a moment to hear from our newest sponsor, audible.com, and then we'll be right back. We're going to get into the Wayback Machine with Eric when we get back right after this. All right, we're back with Eric Weiss from draftexpress.com and Sports Aptitude. Eric, I do want to get – I find the team building – 
incredibly fascinating, and I have a feeling as you join us on Celtic Stuff Live throughout the season, we're going to dive into even more of it. But it really is fascinating just hearing your take and how you see the, the pieces fitting based on your experience and your expertise in the industry. Um, but I want to – there's two things I want to talk to you about, and, and we did talk about it on the initial interview, but I just think it has to be included again. And two are, you know, how did you get immersed – into this technology and analytics and, and et cetera, and then also maybe revisit when we first got the credentials and how all that went down. Um, but first, let's talk about the fact that you were in the Bay Area, you came to Boston, and now you're back in the Bay Area again. And I think, you know, I wrote down a couple of notes in our first interview, but one of the things that you talked about was cultural immersion and just what it meant for you to be immersed in the tech boom out in the San Francisco area when, you know, that was all happening and your career was, was beginning to, you know, go from college and into the professional world. Yeah. Um, I think this is my life choices are an excellent study in nature and nurture, right. And how that, that, that kind of made me into who I am today. And I've always been, you know, an analytical inquisitive, uh, minded type of individual and I've always taken to science. That was always something I was interested in and was good at uh, growing up, uh, you know, a child of two physicians, uh, you know, it makes sense to try to understand why things happen. Um, and I grew up in Boston and I was born in 1979. So my earliest childhood memories of sports are, you know, seeing, uh, you know, Kelly green versus purple and gold on the TV before I even know what it was. You know, there was always basketball was always prominent in my house or wherever we were going. There was always something going on. And so that was, I believe that's the first sport I ever went to. I don't think I went to a baseball game until maybe 1990, but I went to, you know, I think opening, opening day on 87, right after the championship, but I had finally reached the point where wow. I wanted to know why everyone was going nuts all the time, you know, without me understanding what they were watching. You know, <laughs> so it's, you know, when I was nine, I'm like, Hey, I want, I like basketball. It seems like the thing to do, right? Everyone's cheering and everyone's going crazy and people are having conversations and ignoring me when I want ice cream. So I had to figure out what was going on. <laughs> and, uh, and I happened to start right at the beginning of the end. So the process of watching a team that I had grown accustomed to being at the upper echelon, uh, of, the sport, I watched it kind of denigrate into a series of, you know, of, uh, you know, tragedy, obviously, as a part of that. But then, you know, ownership management, there were fundamental things were happening that I didn't understand at that point, because all most of us know at that point, or, or maybe at any point, is really what you see on the court, you know, the players. And how did we get those players? And why aren't our players as good as the players we have? You know, all these questions. Um, and you know, I can't, became a huge fan of basketball. And then I moved out to Silicon Valley, uh, to go to college in, uh, 1997, 96, 97, 97. And, um, and I just got really lucky. All of a sudden I got immersed again in, you know, kind of the dot com boom and bust. And I got to see how, you know, kind of the birth of technology was starting to impact, uh, you know, industry at the very front end, right? It's, it's something very, it's hard to describe 
when you're in the middle of it because I would go back home and I'd be talking about something and it hadn't rippled, you know, out to the East Coast, right? Like just conversations with people. Just for an example, when I was, I think, a sophomore, uh, everybody started getting internships and I had a bunch of friends that had like $5 million in, you know, stock options, <laughs> you know, within within Damn. a year of working. Now, of course, most of those people never got those fully vested and those companies folded and all that other stuff. But I mean, it was crazy. It was unbelievable. It's like anything that was involved with technology was turning into gold. And I mean, we can get to granular detail about how much people paid for clicks on advertising and all this other stuff. It was like completely wild west. Nobody knew anything, but there was money being like literally given away for like really loose business plans and everything. So the intrigue of that coupled with my baseline interest in basketball, you know, kind of turned into, you know, the pursuit, at least uh, as a, as a hobby, um, I hadn't figured out how to make that into a real job. Um, but at least starting to think about, you know, how technology was influencing uh, sports and obviously the Oakland A's, the Moneyball A's were out here during my, uh, you know, time in school too. So all of a sudden, we, you know, got exposed to that, the marriage of the two of those. And I was actually very, very close to that situation in a lot of weird ways that we're not going to talk about on this podcast, but I got a front row seat to, you know, to kind of all of this. And that's the way my mind works. I'm like, I love sports. Technology seems to be the thing to do. And what can I do, you know, to kind of, to kind of be a part of that in, in whatever way I can. I'm definitely not a, you know, a uh, quantitative research, you know, data scientist by any stretch. I, I love humanities, but I have a, a deep appreciation for scientific method. And I understand the value of, you know, cross-validating your observations and assumptions based on some type of, you know, concrete information. And, you know, the confluence of all that led to, what I mentioned before, which is getting in touch with Jonathan Gavoni, who had, you know, just started Draft City about a year before that. And then we met out in Vegas and, and we started covering, you know, the league and I started talking about it. And then from there, just opportunity after opportunity opened up. So now you're back in the Bay Area and you're going to be covering hopefully Golden State quite extensively. And I can imagine that this new dynamic with, you know, a team that won a champion, you know, two years removed from a championship, probably should have won the championship, probably should have back-to-back championships. But, you know, obviously it didn't work out. They've done some personnel changes. They brought in yet another perennial pro- perennial all-star, most likely, very likely to be a Hall of Famer in, in Kevin Durant, and trying to figure out how do all of these mesh. And I know everybody thinks it's going to work out smoothly and perfectly because Kevin Durant is such a good guy, right? And that's that's just been the, the, the way people have viewed him. And even everybody on Golden State, except now they're all going to be the bad guys, they're going to have a target on their back more than ever before. And really the target should be on Cleveland. But what a, what, what a gift to Cleveland in so many ways other than – Cleveland may not walk away with the championship, but you know it's a real gift because they really they should have a much bigger target on their back. And yet, because of this acquisition, all eyes on Golden State yet again. But you know, Steph's supposed to be a good guy. Clay Thompson's supposed to be a good guy. So we have all these good guy personalities, and now they're on one team. I can only imagine um, how beneficial this be to your work in terms of evaluating teams and and team dynamics and taking. I'm sure they all 
are very nice guys, but to get to that level, you have to have some sort of an ego because it just comes hand in hand with confidence. And so I think it's got to be really important to your work to be out there. I think the timing is excellent. Yeah, no, I mean, I had the benefit uh, and the privilege to, you know, to kind of not only grow up in the Boston sports team, but, you know, talking about the credentials uh, angle or whatever, but the first, you know, when I first started uh, my own company and kind of, you know, figured something out and went with it, I was lucky enough to get to be exposed to, uh, you know, the day-to-day operations of an organization and, uh, and seeing how players interact with each other, seeing how they're doing from a develop, you know, from a development standpoint, from going from the ground up, right. More, more prospects, draft picks, uh, you know, tinkering with the roster, et cetera. And, and that was phenomenal for where I was in terms of, uh, evaluating the draft and understanding fit into, a system where things were new and things were organic and uh, it's been, you know, tremendous uh, benefit and a hat tip to everybody at the service organization who allowed, uh, you know, me to have that experience. But out here in this situation, I think it's an, it's an opportunity to cover a facet of this that I, at least I feel will be under, you know, under covered. I think there's, there's probably going to be a lot of, you know, glad handing about, you know, greatness and, and all this other stuff because it's easy. They're a front runner and things, they should be the best team, you know, on paper and all that. But I don't think it comes together as easily as that. I think that they definitely, definitely, I have a strong feeling that they'll figure out whatever it is that uh, they need to resolve and come to terms with and, and find balance with each other. But I think that's a process. I don't think it just magically works out and everybody high fives each other and like, you know, sings Kumbaya. And that's a lot of what the stories you know, have been like so far is like how Kevin, outside of how Durant picked Golden State, there's just been this, okay, these guys are really close and they're all willing to sacrifice. And I believe all that. I, I They are in their heads. But when there's a difference between the theory and the practice, right? And so when it starts happening. Especially if it I'm doesn't start out well, right? When the pressure's on because the expectation in their minds is that that's going to happen. And look at how many games they won last year. They're going to get questions if they don't maintain that pace or aren't on course to break their own record. They're immediately going to be scrutinized, and almost in a silly manner. (laughs) Oh, for sure. I mean, the, the probability of exceeding that win total is, you know, nil. You know, I mean, it's just not very likely to happen. I think Steve Kerr is ideally suited, and I think they all, I don't I don't see that as their internal kind of struggles. Like, oh, we're not reaching the expectations of other people. I don't think that's it. I think it's more along the lines of, well, how do they differentiate role responsibility, right? Like, they're all willing to share, but everyone still wants to be involved, and they might all psychologically be willing to take less volume of something, but they're all going to want a percentage of something also. And that's not completely defined, you know, to the best of my knowledge, maybe they have this all worked out and it's all smooth. But I think that when you shift anything, even if people are mostly doing the same stuff, right. It's like Clay Thompson is a, is a shooter, right. And, and Kevin Durant can do everything. And, and then you have playmakers, right. Like I just, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how these guys process, you know, their, you know, their role responsibilities and how they process their, needs to work together and their intent to work together with the realities of what the sacrifices are going to be, the actual change that will have to take place, which is unfamiliar because it's a new thing. 
And I think that that will be fascinating, uh, you know, to, to look at and see, well, how do these guys come together? What is their, how do they go through it? What are they going through? You know, what are the specifics of, of what's not working? Because, you know, people will cover stuff if, you know, if Clay Thompson has a week where he takes eight shots a game and, you know, is only scoring 7.8 points or whatever, that will be a story on what's wrong. But I want to know more about, okay, well, what, what's the conversation, right? Like, what is, what is the deal, right? How are we making these determinations, right? Where is the role responsibility shifting? Is it just because it's the hot hand? Is it a feeling out process of, you know, where shots are going to come from based on, you know, what people are accustomed to relative to the, you know, all that stuff is, uh, is something I think makes Steve Kerr's job a lot more difficult than kind of the spin on all, you know, all he has to do is steeple his hands and, you know, and sit down and grin and everything will work out. <laughs> that's typically when I put in my my Burns laugh. <laughs> you know, that's like he can just tap his fingers and 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 make it happen. Um, or that there's or that or or that there is something insidious about what he's doing, right? But really, that's the job is to pull all this together and 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 quite simply, to your point, it it's not going to just happen on its own. It's going to still take a lot of work and they've put a lot of work into that club to begin with. Um, let's, let's go back to the beginning when you and I first met uh, online. I can't remember if it was at Celtics blog or if it was cause we invited you onto the show. I, I really don't remember, but it was really the work of you and Jeff Clark. And I kind of came along for the ride when we secured credentials. And I, I believe that uh, it was the first solely online media um outlet that was credentialed by the Boston Celtics and I and actually ironically I remember our first uh meeting or the meeting that we went to with the Celtics it just I just happened to go because you and I had gotten tickets and I'm almost certain the game was against the Golden State Warriors because Monte Ellis was with them at the time and I remember you were a big fan of his and so I'm almost positive that it was a Golden State game ironically that we went to but you know then we went went and met Jeff and etc but maybe talk about how you remember that all coming together I know it's quite some time ago and maybe the details are a little hazy but in in lieu of this off-season interview series and how we're sort of talking to people about you know, if they're if they're aspiring sports broadcasters or sports journalists, how this kind of all comes together, I think I think they'd be interested to hear. You know, what what your best recollection of that time was? Yeah, you know, and, and we talked about this before. I know it's a little uh, redundant I, for you and me, but I think it's important for the show. It's hard to make it sound. Oh yeah, back in the day that I thought about that <laughs> ten days ago. But um, yeah, uh, I honestly don't remember what started I maybe I asked Jeff you know if that was a possibility um I, I, I you know I've known uh people in the in the organization for you know for a long time um and I'm sure that we got you know kind of some validation on on that end from uh you know passed up the uh you know up the chain to Jeff Twist I don't think we went in raw on just a request for for blogs but I don't remember the order of operations I just know that we were interested in it. It hadn't been done before and it just made a lot of sense. And as we talked about, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, yeah, you, I, I heard you on one of the podcasts talking about, you know, say, I didn't know what I was doing and, and all this other stuff, but I think it helped to feel like, 
I belong because I had been doing stuff with Draft Express and because we had had access, I kind of got over the, uh, you know, kind of that uh, shock of not having any live reps. I had been into, you know, games. I had I'd had uh, media credentials before, and it just seemed like, and, and I was actually doing something, uh, pursuing something professionally that would benefit from, you know, from exposure to the inner workings of, you know, of team building. And going yeah, into that, you weren't intimidated because you really felt like you belonged in that conversation. Yeah, and it didn't make any sense. Like you said, a Sheriff Springer uh, looked at you, you know, uh, like you're that was Jeff out of Clark. Your head and, and I, I, that was Jeff Clark. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and, yeah, and yeah. Shira was like, "What are you doing here? What's this guy? He's like an alien." That's yeah. That was the Jeff Clark interview is another good one, no doubt. No, I know it is, and and, and I remember that, but I didn't care because I had already been. I had already gotten that, you know, kind of reaction, but it didn't matter because, and I think that goes back into not even just my experience, uh, you know, as small as it was at that point in time leading up to that, but also the exposure, uh, you know, to Silicon Valley, uh, you know, before that and seeing where tech was going, it was like obvious, right? It was like, well, look, this is what media is and this is where it's going. And it's not any different, you know, like the, you know, all the old, the old guard guys that for years would fall on the, oh, it's just kids in their basements. Like, well, yeah, there's a lot of those people because now everybody can do it, but that does not mean that is mutually exclusive from people who can actually do the job who use the same medium. Right. And I think the proliferation of talking heads kind of spun everybody's cap, right? No one knew what to do with it, but if you believed that you knew what you were doing and you had some level of track history behind you as small as it was then relative uh, to how it is now. It just seemed intuitively obvious. It's like, look, man, there's, here's a voice. This is probably, you know, who gets more Celtics uh, readership, right? Celtics blog or the Worcester telegram, right? No offense to the Worcester telegram, but your, your, your core constituency uh, of sports fans, your diehards. Are as it relates to Celtics people. content. Absolutely as it relates to Celtics content, want to have dialogue and they want five updates a day on nonsensical, theoretical, tr- whatever it is. Like that's where it was, it was obviously going to be a lodestone as it was already happening. And so why wouldn't you have, as long as you have a professional, you know, in that room uh, representing that voice, why wouldn't you have them? Why wouldn't they have a seat at the table? What's funny is I don't remember like Jeff's description with Shira, and I know you don't necessarily mean Shira ex- uh, uh, explicitly, you know, just in general. But maybe you had done such a nice job before I got in there. I never felt that. As a matter of fact, like people like Scott Souza and and uh, Steve Bulpet, I thought were very very receptive to my presence there, which I appreciated. And like I said, maybe you had just paved the way enough over the previous few months before I got there that, you know, it was sort of accepted. It was already, you know, hey, this is the way it is. But I never I never had that experience where traditional media, as it, as it were, was, was kind of – I didn't feel uncomfortable, but I also didn't feel like they didn't think I should be there or otherwise. I think they were just busy doing their jobs was how I always 
kind of experienced it. And since I threw out Scott's name, you mentioned you know the same thing. They all oh, they want five updates, and you know they they want the story you know that night and not the next morning. And you know Scott was actually one of the people who adopted blogging for that reason, and had had kind of from the traditional media standpoint really adopted a new media philosophy pretty early on as well. And you know I think we were all just learning what's this all going to be about now. You know, because I, I think once once there were representatives from online media and once podcasting had a presence and even Comcast Sportsnet had partnered with Celtics Stuff Live and we were getting, you know, plugs during the playoff games and during the games and Mike Gorman would show our logo during the game. It was very clear that something else was that this was that the landscape was going to have to adjust. And I and I felt like a lot of people were. Uh, the uncertainty maybe you know put them in a certain position, but at the same time, I think it was embraced. And you know, Steve Pett had nothing to worry about based on his relationship and the outlet. And Scott Susan embraced the technology and just immediately began to do it. I think everybody reacted to it in different ways. Oh yeah, of course. But that goes in individuals again, right? You can't just blanket everybody like, oh, that's like a newspaper reporter. I mean, everyone has a everyone has a personality. And, and Shira a was known for being feisty, are. right? I mean, Shira had a had a rep. I I didn't know her well, and I never saw any such activity in the locker room when I covered it. But I just remember that every she had a, a reputation for being somewhat feisty, and I think she's still um, with the paper. It's just not in a sports capacity. Yeah, no, Sarah's great. I mean, think about it from her perspective. She's a diminutive female covering, uh, you know, what is, you know, at least historically been considered a very, you know, misogynistic uh, kind of male dominant world. So you better be a little bit feisty. You better be a little bit assertive because no one, I mean, you've been in the scrum when you're trying to get quotes uh, that does not favor the uh, timid or faint of heart. So, uh, you know, you got to do more. So it's easy for me to kind of reach over people and kind of use a booming voice and, and do whatever. But I mean, if you got to, you got to fight to get in there, especially if you have, I mean, let's take a minute to appreciate the beat reporters responsibility for creating content that readers actually want to read when there's nothing going on. <laughs> it's easy for me to write about the, you know, the guy on the end of the bench that I watched for the last three years, you know, in college, and I'm very interested in what he's doing in practice, but that doesn't sell newspapers. So, you know, producing, you know, the nightly, you know, or the daily, you know, kind of team coverage in that kind of macro context for the, you know, for the non diehards, for the people that like, you know, like the team, but are mostly drinking their coffee and reading the morning paper before, you know, before heading off to uh, work. I mean, that used to be a thing. I don't know. Well, yeah, without that, I never would have been a sports fan because I wouldn't have been able to keep up. I mean, I grew up in Bangor, Maine, right, or Hamden, Maine, right next to Bangor, out in the middle of nowhere. How many Celtics games do you think I got to when I was young? I only saw one game in the old garden. It was a five-and-a-half, six-hour drive to get down there. Um, you know what? It just that was the nature of it. If I I was a paper boy from like the age of ten or eleven and on, you know, I was an early early worker working kid, but I had the paper every day and I read the Bangor Daily News and that's how I kept up on sports and it's actually one of the things that 
made me a, a huge sports fan. I read my own paper after I delivered it every morning and then went off to school. And, you know, without that, I, I never would have been a huge sports fan. I didn't have the Internet. And it sounds like that old Saturday Night Live skit. Yeah, it wouldn't be back in my day. But, you know, I really didn't. I did not, I did not, we did really not have the Internet. It might be hard for some people to believe, you know. And I, I don't feel like I'm really that old at 42, but that's the truth, you know. We The phone had a rotary dial. It was plugged into the wall, and I got a newspaper. And guess what? It really wasn't that long ago. No, it wasn't that long ago. That's like that's what's so amazing. Uh, I was just having a conversation about this uh, the other day, but the advances in tech. Yeah, we were watching uh, Back to the Future. I was watching Back to the Future too with with my daughter, and so flying cars uh, and the uh, Mister Fusion was last year, according to <laughs> according. I to remember that. Back it's so hilarious. But we we dovetailed into a conversation about. Um, uh, not me and my daughter, but uh, uh, me and my fiance about uh, how many advances in technology uh, there had actually been, but how they're so, I don't know, they're, they're more subtle than a flying car, right? But they're not any less amazing when you really think about what, you know, yeah. what the ability is. Like the ability to talk to everybody, right? From you know, anybody to talk to anybody else and accrue this is like, it's amazing. I mean, our, my grandparents had newsreels that gave you like international news in movies, right? <laughs> you didn't get anything. And now we can just type in any, basically anything we want to know about. And there's like 1500 different uh, viewpoints on it. I mean, that is amazing. And it's intimidating it's to try to figure out, you know, yeah, it's just, but it's, that's, that's phenomenal. That is flying cars, you know, and that is the world that, our kids are growing up in without really knowing, you know, I mean, I'm glad my daughter knows what a DVD player is, but I don't think she knows what a cassette is. Like certainly not an audio, uh, <laughs> and a rotary phone. She's like, what? I'm like, it's a thing with the circle that you used to have to dial. And then you'd have to start over again. If you screwed up or your fingers slipped out of it, it was awful. Now I don't even remember anybody's number because it's all saved. I mean, that is the world we live in. And so, you know, one of the best benefits of that from a sports fandom standpoint is we have information on, you know, almost anything we want and we can study the game and we can enjoy the game to whatever level. I don't feel like that was the burning thing. I would say you would agree in Bangor, Maine, not being able to get to the game, but weren't you always waiting for that Sunday edition of the paper, whatever one had like the bigger sports section? So you could be yeah. like, okay, what the heck is going on? I need detailed box scores so I can see how all the players in the league are doing or what, you know, like where we, well, and the column always had more insight. It wasn't just a breakdown of the game. There was always a feature and it gave you more insight into what was really going on behind the scenes. Yep. And that's, that was it. That was, (laughs) and now we get those every day. (laughs) Yeah. Now you have too much, right. And, or whatever, like you can choose what you want, but you're like, you're leaving some on the table. I don't think, there was literally anything that had to do with uh, with professional sports that I did not purchase or acquire in some way. Whether there's the publication, you know, the yearly publications that came out, right, doing the, the season previews or whatever it was. I was always buying whatever, sporting news, you know, everything. Sports Illustrated, like just collecting every piece of everything. Now you're leaving 90% of it on the table, <laughs> even if you're digesting as much as you can 
you can possibly get. There's just an endless stream of something. Uh, it's drinking that from a fire hose. It really is at this point. And, <laughs> and that's one of the, I think that's one of the learning curves we haven't figured out yet. Like there's a lot of technology out there trying to help, but how do you whittle it down and how do you choose what and how do you not become overwhelmed with the information and and then sometimes the information's the same you're just choosing the favorite your favorite storyteller to give you the information and so you know you can and that, that was one of the interesting things over the evolution of covering the team with the credentials too was you know eventually all of the quotes and everything else was made almost public and and the audio was there and so it wasn't and and I think that's when I realized everybody, a lot of people were getting the same quotes after the game. They might have been listening to a different player at a different time, but then when Doc Rivers would speak, everybody was getting the same quotes. We weren't getting different information. And so at that point it was, all right, so who can tell the same story the best? And that's what it seemed like. And I thought, you know, I don't want to tell the same story, which is why I think I don't. I didn't pursue the writing as as much as I could have. Plus, there was a lot of driving involved for me going from Maine and back. But at the end of the day, I was like, I want to do something new. I want to do something different. I want to present this information similarly. But I, I think for me, it was more about having my own voice versus trying to bring the voices of the players and the coaches to the listener and you and I used to do a lot of the game wraps and talk about what we saw on the court and there were there were there was a lot of assumption and analysis or I should say there was a lot of assumption in the analysis but for me that that organic discussion was so much more fun and I think entertaining for the listeners like all right this is how I viewed the game you know and and I know people need that access to the players and whatnot but I think there's there's something else for getting somebody else's interpretation of the events and what it means to them versus, you know, just getting the facts, ma'am. So Eric, yeah. I, I want to, we got to close out the interview, but while we were doing this and it, it won't be any new news by the time that this broadcasts and, you know, gets put out because these interviews are sort of timeless in the off season interview series and they're meant to be, but uh, KG did announce retirement while we were talking, so we sort of said, hey, it's probably going to happen, and uh, yes, it did get confirmed. But there's this quote, and it relates to the discussion earlier about emotional intelligence, and I figured I'd, I'd let you have some final saves about uh, KG before we close 100%. But this quote comes from um, Devin Karperchin from ESPN, and he put it up on Twitter, and it's a quote from Doc Rivers. And Doc says, before game six in the 2008 finals, when we beat the Lakers, I walked in the locker room and Kevin gets hyped up to where sometimes he goes over the line. And you could see it. I had him come in my office and sit. And he's sitting there like five, 10, 15 minutes. And I don't say a word. I just go back to work. He's moving around. And finally he says, I'm in a timeout. I'm in timeout. And I didn't even respond. You could hear him. But you think about a guy who's been in the league that long and is still that jacked up for a game that you literally have to calm him down. That's my favorite story. And you know what? For all of the criticism of Doc Rivers, and that's come up a few times on on this interview series with, with different people as we've looked back, for all the criticism of Doc Rivers, he certainly can tell a story. And he's fun to listen to. That's amazing about Kevin Garnett. I mean, you can you just know 
that that was no easy decision for him to walk away from the game. Oh, I'm I'm sure. I mean, I, I mean, all all athletes that compete at a high level, I think, have trouble figuring out what to do next, right? Or a lot of them, because you've defined your life by it. But somebody that feels that passionately about their craft, I mean, yeah, that's got to be. That's got to be tough. I just mean sometimes these players get worn down. Like they're ready. They're not happy about it, and it's not an easy decision, but they're just worn down and they're ready. And and listening to that story about him still being able to get that jacked up, you know, you sort of think that Kevin Garnett was never going to be ready. Hmm. I'm more disappointed that uh, he, you know, I thought he was going to transition into uh, front office uh, work or something. I'd like to see him involved in the game and not just be one of the greats on the sidelines so i'm hopeful that in some way shape or form he can he can do so and if it's not going to happen you know how loyal he is if it's not going to happen with minnesota which you know tragedy with flip and all that which which is really sad because they you know really have something going you know i would love to see him involved in some way uh back in boston because i think he has so much more to give because that's what he was he was the most he was the spiritual leader. he was the emotional core of every team he played on and he was able to lift the, the you know the the energy level the the grit the resolve you know of everybody through sheer force of will and i don't necessarily you know he might not be able to sit on a bench <laughs> with he's famous for you know hanging out but from a from a management uh capacity i would love to see him removed from the intensity of the game itself but still having the intensity of the game he's observing resonate off of him. And I think he could be an unbelievable uh, kind of focal point uh, uh, personality within an organization because he's still going to feel what's going on with whatever he's affiliated with. And the ability to do that without being swept up in it completely by being a part of it, I just think he's got so much to offer for a young team finding its way. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. There's no way he's not going to be involved in the game of basketball in some way or another for the rest of his life. You know, I sort of look at him in that Bill Russell uh, position someday, the way that he's still involved in the game. And he's sort of this wise old man who who still has a lot to offer young players. So, well, Eric, we're going to wrap Eric Weiss, everybody from DraftExpress.com and Sports Aptitude one of the earliest and greatest friends of the show here at Celtic Stuff Live. Love having you on, Eric. And we're going to hear from you, hopefully, a lot more during this season to bring you on as a guest. Yeah, no, that'd be great. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do now that you're back and you've, uh, you know, you've uh, fired it on up again. It's, it's nice to uh, to see everybody, all the old heads, uh, still involved in what they love. No doubt. it. That sounded like a raise your game kind of comment, which I'm certainly going to try to do this season. There's a lot more competition out there, um, but at the same time, it's all good content. And like you said, drinking from a fire hose and everybody's got to figure out who they want to tell who they want them to, to tell them the story of this Celtic season coming up. So everybody knows about well, everybody who knows this show from way back knows I have this weird, funky thing around the number 17. I'm just going to throw it out there that. You know, the NBA Finals this year at the end of this season will be played in 2017. I'm just saying, you know, and sometimes there's just something magical, magical things happen. Who knows? Who knows? I'm open-minded to it. I'll leave it at that. Eric Weiss, 
from DraftExpress.com and Sports Aptitude. You can find him at DraftExpress.com. Definitely check out his work there. You'll be hearing from him again later in the season. Huge thanks as we are wrapping up the off-season interview series in the preseason. And just a reminder, the show... It will be available on demand on the CLNS Radio mobile app as well as clnsradio.com. Don't forget to be following us on Twitter at CSL underscore Justin and my co-host at CSL underscore Duke. That's John Duke. Big thanks to everybody for tuning in. You can support the show by subscribing to Celtic Stuff Live on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating and a review. I implore you to do this because your feedback is important to us. And a reminder that today's show has been brought to you by Audible.com and FanEssentials.net. Not only do they have a great deal for you listeners, but most importantly, you would be supporting Celtic Stuff Live in the entire CLNS radio network. A huge thanks to our loyal audience who makes it all worthwhile, and for staff writer Eddie Santiago, program director Larry H. Russell, the founder of CLNS Radio, Nick Gelso, and my co-host John Duke, I'm Justin Poulin. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Celtic Stuff Live. Celtic Stuff Live.